Hello, I'm Scott Button, and you're listening to Really Queer Voices, a new podcast where I get to talk to some of the most interesting queer artists working in theater, film, drag, and beyond. These conversations were recorded on the unceded, stolen territory of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh Nations, which is also where the artists we spoke to reside. Just a note for today's episode, I was having a couple of issues with my mic, so if it sounds a little bit distant, very sorry about that. We're working on it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. talking to performer, facilitator, and writer Jackson Y. Chung Se, as well as Jenny Lars and Kati Q, who together form the prolific creative duo JKJK. We discuss surviving the church, their hopes for the future, and how a Gemini saved Jackson's life. Hey, Scott. Jackson Y. Chung Se, for folks who don't know is an acclaimed Hong Kong Canadian interdisciplinary artist and facilitator, creating work in writing, performance, and media. An active and playful cultivator of mindfulness, Jackson dedicates their life to building community while reclaiming spiritual connection, joy, and self-worth back from colonized ideas. Welcome to the show, Jackson. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to be talking with you. I, um, Jackson and I met... We were playing lovers in a reading yes, over we Zoom, <laughs> lovers in a dangerous time, and we treated each other so badly, but I knew that we, in real life, we would treat each other very well as colleagues and as friends. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I remember you retitled the script as a bad romance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was, a, it, there was a Gaga reference. At that time, Olivia Rodrigo's album had just come out, oh, and yeah. I was very into that. Oh, yeah. And and I feel like it was all just swirling around and, and just really made sense it to me. It permeated into the characters in the script. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Jackson, um... I'd love to hear, uh, you do a lot of different things. You're a facilitator, you're a writer, you're an instructor. I want to hear a little bit about you, how you got started. Tell us the story of Jackson. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big question. The story of Jackson. Um, well, I would say my first love was, uh, was music. I remember, um, as a little kid, I would there was like a little toy chest and I would pick out the colorful xylophone and I would play on it. At the mall, I would dance to music. And then um, I grew up in Calgary, so we were close to the Chateau Lake Louise. And one year, my uncle came from Hong Kong for a visit. And uh, during wintertime, we went and in the giant lobby, there was a beautiful elegant black grand piano and somebody was playing and filling the whole castle with music and I was just like five years old and mesmerized and just went up to the piano player and just stared for like half an hour and then my uncle looked at my mom and my dad and he was like has he always been like this and they were like yeah but you know they were refugees turned immigrants didn't have a lot of money so they didn't have the capital to invest in a in a piano or an instrument and so before he left my uncle bought me my first um piano yeah like the a beautiful yamaha and uh and i still have it to this day and uh and that kind of you know and and then my parents paid for piano lessons and gave me vocabulary and tempo and emotion and, and dynamics um, and rhythm and I think that translated you know as I grew older in, in musicals uh, fostering a love of dance and acting and singing um, and then I started I think yeah I studied folk dancing uh, in, in some different countries around the world and then tried my hand at writing and so now, and I've also always just loved working with youth and using like creative approaches to stimulate learning. And so, um, yeah, I've taught English overseas and worked with immigrant and refugee kids and, and queer youth, especially now. So, so yeah, I incorporate all of those things together uh, into my work and, and, and I, yeah, I continue to love what I do. That's wonderful, Jackson. I love this very contemporary 
interdisciplinary approach that you seem to have to your work. And I would also say from what I know of you that you have that approach to your life as well in terms of seeing things as in a holistic way. Um, I want to hear about a couple of things. I love that's a beautiful story about the piano and, and thank you for sharing it. I love that your way in was music. Tell me about this folk dancing. You said you learned folk dancing from around the world. Tell us about that, that a bit. So I studied civil engineering at Queen's University. I was like a good, I grew up evangelical Christian. Very and Queen's, sorry to interrupt. Uh, Queen's is in Kingston, Ontario. Is in Kingston, Ontario. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for asking. Uh, so, so I, I guess I had a very tradition, very traditional and specific way of how I thought I would grow up, grow up, you know, I would have a wife and kids in the house and I'd be an engineer, but obviously that wasn't congruent with who I was. And we can talk about that a little bit later because that really is, I think, um, the crux of, of what I do in my work and my life's purpose. But uh, to talk about folk dancing, I, I finished my engineering degree. I had gone um, on an exchange to Singapore and loved traveling, exposing my mind to diverse viewpoints and seeing the world and experiencing new cultures. And so after engineering, I wanted to do more of the same. And I was like, what, what, how can I do that? Um, and at the time, you know, a bunch of East Asian countries were hiring English teachers and all you needed was to be a native speaker and, and to have a bachelor's degree of any sort. Um, so in East Asia and then also Georgia, the country. And I didn't know a thing about Georgia. I didn't even know it was a country. And so naturally I applied and that's, that's where I decided to go. So I lived on this little, in this little, um, house um, by the Black Sea with some um, villagers uh, and there was a cow and fig trees and mandarins and um, I danced three times a week with like a local group. I learned the language and I worked at, um, at the little village school um, yeah, in Georgia. Yeah, for a year. And then, and then uh, I loved that so much that I decided to do another year of teaching English abroad and, and learning folk dance. Um, and this time, I heard about a program through the French embassy. There was an opportunity to go to Guadeloupe, which is a little butterfly-shaped island in the Caribbean, um, which is like an overseas colony of France. And so I applied and I got in. And so I, I went and I learned the dance there, um, which was deeply, you know, a tied with, um, tied with, tied with the history of, of slavery and migration and diaspora. And, and like was my first exposure to more improvised dance to like acoustic beats. Mm -hmm. So that, that's, yeah. So I learned folk dance in those two places. That's mm -hmm. gorgeous, Jackson. My goodness. I, grew up in the suburbs and did not go to Georgia and did not go anywhere interesting ever. So I'm so struck by that. And and I was, as I was listening to you, I'm so struck by you, what seems like a really strong ability to pick things up, uh, to learn the language in Georgia and to pick up new dance. Is language a strength of yours? Like what languages were spoken at home for you? Sure. Well, even though you might have lived in the suburbs um scott you clearly travel lots of places in your mind and i'm a huge admirer of your work uh that's sweet <laughs> i'm gonna take that <laughs> you should you definitely should um at home i so i was born in hong kong and uh have most of my family there i've worked there a few summers and traveled there um when we could uh, as a family growing up. And so at home, I still speak Cantonese with my parents. Uh, I went to Mandarin school like every Saturday morning. Oh my goodness, for, for years and years and years. And I resented it. But uh, now I'm glad I went, I guess. And uh, yeah, but yeah, predominantly at home, I spoke Cantonese. Mm -hmm. And I learned French at school. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. So English, Cantonese, French. And Mandarin. a little bit of Mandarin, yeah. Wow. <laughs> the vestiges of my Saturday mornings. 
What I want to do now is introduce folks to Jenny and Kati, our other two guests for today. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> That's Kati's theme music. Yes. Anytime they enter a space, there has to be some kind of... They bring of, their own theme music. There yes. has to be some kind of a trumpet. That's just the way it goes. Kati Q is a performer from Puerto Rico, co-creator and star of 2020 Fringe New Play Prize winner Catalina Lao Presenta, Ahora Conmigo, which features original music. Kati Q was the guitarist and vocalist for punk band Black Exploitation. Kati has played as a professional musician with over 20 bands, cutting their teeth on the famous Austin, Texas live music scene. Most notably, they toured as a drummer for queer femcore band The Tuna Helpers. Professional credits include Denim Doves and Costa for Salvage Vanguard Theater in Austin, Texas, Heaven Born Wind at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and Frank Theater's Belonging. And Kati and Jenny's collaborative duo, JKJK, began creating together in 2015, officially forming in 2019. Their mandate is to create work that magnifies the disenfranchised while challenging the status quo. Their work combines Kati's punk rock aesthetic and Jenny's experimental theater training to create stories that center joy, foolishness, and social justice in an attempt to get to the heart of the human condition. Welcome, Kati, and welcome, Jenny. Thank Thank you for having us. I'm so thrilled to be talking to the two of you. I, I don't know anyone quite like the two of you in that you create so much work together and then you also are so productive individually. Tell us about that. Well, um, uh, we sort of had parallel lives. Uh, we both moved to Austin, Texas in 1997 but uh, Jenny went to school for theater, and I went to play music and be in lots of bands. And uh, we were, you know, living our creative lives individually. And then in 2015, we got to work together for the first time. And I really love, for lack of a better word, <laughs> uh, our collaboration. Um, it's really honest. It's really... Um, we work really hard and we laugh a lot and those are my favorite things and we cry a lot (laughs) and, uh, so why not keep doing it if it's, if it feels good, right? And yeah, in, uh, 2018, if you don't mind me sharing, um, Kathy broke their hand at work and before that Kathy had been, a drummer for 20 years and a guitar player and bands and playing music was their life. And I think after that injury, which was life-changing, we came together as a family and it became like, okay, so what is, where do you focus your performance energy now? Where do you focus your artistic energy now? Because you still have to create. Um, so uh, I had like previously in other like, another year been like we should turn this character that Kathy has we should turn this, her into a one-woman show oh yeah yeah I've thought about that okay we'll do that after this accident it became like let's do that let's do that now let's make it happen now and that was our first well it's actually that wasn't completely our first piece just together because we had from 2015 to 2019 making Catalina we had done other works with other companies and like we went to Finland together and did this piece that um, I had originally created with other people, but it was just the two of us kind of like redevising it. So we had been just the two of us in a rehearsal room, but I would say Catalina was like the first time of like really jumping in to create something together. And uh, I think that we both unlocked something in each other. I had never written a script before that, and Kathy had never been a lead role or a solo performance in a piece before. So well, you we... couldn't tell from seeing it. Really? To, yes. yeah, to your credit. To your... <laughs> I did. I was uh, performing as Catalina, like it was sort of like a drag persona. Uh, before uh, the story came along, it was kind of like my armor, my suit of armor. I I can be femme. I I can be all the things that my mom wanted me to be. You know, in this sequence dress and, all, and this wig. For some reason, it gave me power. So. 
Yeah, and when we first started saying, like, let's turn it into a show, Katy was actually like, no talking. Like, I only sing in Spanish. And and we played with these ideas, but it became like, I'm sorry, like, we let's talk. We got to talk. Like, we want to give the audience more information than we can if it's just a Spanish singing and a, a physical clown show. So it still is a physical clown show, but, of course, there's a lot more talking. There is a whole hour that Katy, it's actually it runs for 53 minutes, but <laughs> Katy is all of the words now. Uh, so, but it, I think it was for both of us this like, oh, um, new paths of creating that we opened in each other. And then also because we enjoyed that so much, new projects kept coming uh, and just like developing on top of each other. And we, I actually like, I have a decades of experience of being a creator, but in the last two years, I think everything I work on, Kathy is involved in. So, Kathy does have a theater life outside of what we do together, but I would say everything I work on is uh, JKJK. Like even my own script, Desperately Seeking Comfortable Shoes, I asked Kathy to uh, do the music, the compositions, and and in that she also collaborated with me on the lyrics. So, yeah, I love I love hearing that story that. Jenny, your push for the words, like as 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 the as the writer, and the kind of compromise and balance that you struck as a result, as as, as a partnership. Catalina is described as a clown show, a protest, and a cabaret. And I remember seeing it and thinking, and I was watching at home, pandemic circumstances and everything. But I remember thinking it has this rowdiness and this up for grabs feeling that felt really dynamic. And so, talk about that a little bit. Well. When it came to the words, you know, why did I, I had to ask myself, why did I have to put this suit of armor in the first place? So let's take it off. And basically that's how the, the words came about telling stories about past trauma, family issues, and, you know, my fixation with these, uh, bigger than life women that I saw on television when I was growing up. And I was like, why can't I be like that? But I can be, but I'm not. But I, it's so confusing, you know? Like, I can put on the dress and be like that, but I'm not. I am this guy, you know? <laughs> and uh, so when we decided to write the story, it was important to be as honest as possible with like you know political issues issues of race gender and all that and I think that's why it resonated with so many people because of how raw and honest it was at the same time so. to speak to the rowdiness though I think that um Katya and I both also really center laughter and joy and I think it's like when you have grown through whatever traumas are your traumas uh there's this I, recognition of like, how do I grieve? How do I hold on to grief? How do I carry it? Where do I lay it down? When do I bring it up? I know I will have griefs that I will hold forever, but how do I hold them? And then continuing to center joy and laughter over and over because we ended up, you know, really diving into the, we had been writing and developing before the pandemic, but really we were in the heart of it at the pandemic. And it, it, was traumatizing to turn on Netflix. It was traumatizing to turn on the TV because everything centered around really hard places. And we felt like, but if we live those hard places as a family and if, if as various bodies and identities have to live in marginalized spaces, we don't always want to see that on TV. We don't always want to see that in the theater. Like, I don't always want to cry or bring up all of that drudgery. So we wanted to also have as much raucousness, laughter, physical comedy, bad jokes, all of that, and the rock and roll and all of that to make it this, like, roller coaster ride of an experience. But then that also brings in that heart and that humanity that can resonate with people in terms of mothers and loss and family and um, how you hold grief right yeah. so then to add to that also the raucousness comes naturally because my aesthetic comes from the uh, experimental theater training background and get these punk rock so Woo! partly we just 
Also, I am a white Norwegian settler who grew up in the land of the Lakota Nation in the United States. And Kathy grew up in Puerto Rico and is Taino, Espanol, and uh, African. So uh, this combination of identities and um, educations, I think, lends itself to our performances being a little bit raucous. And I want to be raucous. I want to, like we were saying, take up space. I want to be loud and, and be like, hey, we're here. There's people like this guy here. You may not want to see it or you may not even know that we exist. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> and there's and there's more to you than what a lot of others want to put on you in that there's a lot more that's at your disposal and there's a lot more in your toolbox. I love what you're saying, Katya, about why can't I have the wig? Why can't I be a drama queen at the same time as being a punk rocker? You know, like all of this should be at my disposal. Yeah, you know? at everyone's, right? Yeah. You can do it too, you know? And at the end, we kind of, we not kind of, we end with a hope hopeful message because that's also who I am like we have been through a lot everyone has their own story and uh but we should try to respect and love each other no matter what you know we have been through try to see or was that walk in somebody else's shoes for a second but yeah we we end with hope uh after all the pain, the laughter, the pain, but then I, it's necessary for me to also bring hope to the table. I, I've been talking to my partner lately about, about I, I bring it up because she was feeling sad yesterday and, and, and I was like, oh, I, I, think, I think what gets me and, and what gets her and I think what gets all of us is I, I feel bad if I feel sad because I feel like there's only one way to be, and that's happy and productive. So often we turn on the TV, and it's it's shock, it's it's this, it's that. I think a really interesting conversation that's happening around artists who come from marginalized backgrounds is putting trauma on stage or putting trauma on screen and what exactly that means, and that it is important to honor truths and it's important to honor pain. But like, how do you tell a story without trauma? I'd like to hear from each of you, Jackson and Jenny and Kati. I know it's a huge question, but like, what do we make of that? I know that we're told to metabolize a lot of queer trauma as art. Like, where where do you folks stand on that? I need well, to digest I, that question. I know it's a big. It's a, it's kind of a big one. I'll jump in because I the second project that I started to write, the one that I'm a member of the Emerging Playwrights Unit with, uh, called "Desperately Seeking Comfortable Shoes," is the story of my coming out. I refer to myself as a survivor of the evangelical church. And I'm looking at Jackson because he shared with us that he is also uh, raised in the evangelical church. You um, make yourself so small in that environment. And it, it is, um, it was shocking to me to finally start to like see like and understand the ways that I was indoctrinated and the ways I hid from myself. I came out very late compared to my cohorts of queers um, and certainly generations younger than me, I came out very late. And so my piece was, it's about my coming out, but it honestly was in answer to this overdose of traumatic programming. And it came from Kathy and I literally being like, there's nothing to watch on Netflix. Like, where do we see a queer couple that looks like us? Like, where do we see... Just living. These families. Just Without living. Without the big trauma, right? We do have the trauma, but just... Just, just being you know. and being silly. And so the script is... It's a, it's a little bit more layered than that because I ended up deep diving into Norwegian queer history and queer Viking mythology, and all of that has been, like, brought into the piece. But... It's fun and fluffy. Like, that's, it's really fun and fluffy. But then at the end, you know, it gets like, hopefully it makes people cry. Well, there is a dog kidnapping, but we know the dog is safe from the top. From the top, you know the dog is safe, but there's the a dog kidnapping. But the stakes are high. Yes. <laughs> like, a dog 
has been kidnapped. Yeah, I mean, really, really high stakes. Um, <laughs> it's the only way to start a play, actually. Right? Now, now every play has to start with a dog. I know. I mean, it. it's my challenge moving forward. How do I ever write a better opening than a dog getting kidnapped? No. Um, but but it was just speaking directly to that and and kind of an invitation of like. And this actually, Kathy was speaking on a panel yesterday, and someone said other people in plays get to just be. And so you know, I, I would like to see more queer stories where people are just being and queer interracial and intercultural families just being and of course you have some drama and some spice because that's theater that's storytelling that's that's narrative but um i but think it doesn't have like, to be so much trauma <laughs> or the token queer uh character or bipoc character well we have to have one for really i don't know it's just like there needs to be more so it's Normalize, and I don't like the word normalize because it's like, who decides what normal is? But they have decided for us. Thank you, colonialism. They have decided for us. So how do we change that? Is that something that you think about in, in your writing, Jackson, or something that, that kind of comes up, like, like these sort of trauma narratives that are so prevalent? My lineage is, is, uh, is Chinese, and my parents, as I've mentioned before, um, had to flee for their lives uh, for for a few times, and and in in some way, I I think I adopted or inherited their courage to move um, in to spaces where I could feel more safe, and and that meant moving out of the evangelical community and moving out of Calgary to to these lands. And, and in my body, I think part of my mindfulness practice is, is noticing when I'm craving or being aversive to something and noticing how, how like those things can lead to larger feelings of, of misery and suffering and, and noticing how everything is also impermanent. But kind of bringing it back to, to queer trauma, I think... As a child, I just felt so alone, you know, the only person of color in my entire kindergarten class, surrounded by fervent, devoted Christians, being one myself in the church and feeling like I didn't know what to do. And, and you know, kind of some intergenerational trauma from, from my parents, too, that they've survived and then, um, you know, didn't know were doing their best. And so I think, however, that that has given me uh, maybe heightened anxiety than um, some folks who haven't gone through it has, has offered me, you know, depths of sadness and grief that uh, maybe other folks who maybe had a less traumatic uh, upbringing haven't experienced, but... I guess I, I do feel because I, f I like can experience those depths of feeling, I can also experience the opposite. I guess I mean to say that I notice the, the trauma that's prevalent in mainstream media and how we're inundated with it. However, I've noticed how my art has, uh, how I, I've, I've used my writing or my performance to explore my trauma to heal myself and I won't, don't want to say that I won't ever do that again or I, I want to just create certain narratives that are uh, counter that which which I will and do and have done but I do think that art is an important vehicle for exploring um, the the vastness of human emotion and and I think stories of change and transformation are inspiring. You know, they inspired me to have hope, um, like your work, uh, Catalina, uh, inspire me to, to, uh, to that there is a future out there, something to look forward to. And when I share my story, especially with the youth that I work with, immigrant or refugee, queer youth, um, you know, I don't know their whole life story, but I hope that they, if they see themselves in me, that they can also feel some semblance of hope that things will get better, that they'll be okay.
to aspire to. <laughs> like she was so cool and smart and like and so sexy and so fun. sexy like, and yeah. just always being like, yeah, whatever. I'm gonna go like go to a bar, pick up some men, and like what's what soap yeah oh was she so I don't know Frasier that well so like they I'm not an expert on Frasier what uh, so I'm out of here yeah. I'm leaving right I'm now <laughs> I, know, I know that was a term of your appearance Scotty <laughs> everyone it's must be an expert writer. on Frasier so, so Roz was quite sexually liberated she was she was oh, she was the real fun. slut of the show yeah. every show needs a slut every <laughs> show at least at least one Yes, yeah, this one. But she was very smart. Like she, she was, she was cool. That's cool. I, for one, love slut representation. I love seeing myself on screen. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> That's Speaking of representation. I was a slut in a different life. Slut. <laughs> it's My slut days are over. Are they? Are, are, oh, yeah, well, that's, well, that's too personal. But uh, but I do. But No, when, they are you know, over. Is, I'll is say it. No. <laughs> we are monogamous. Yeah. You, you, yeah. So you, you're a monogamous couple. Yeah, happily monogamous. Yay! Yay. I like I like monog. I mean, I'm open for. I'm happy that so many people are exploring different ways. Um, and I used to be uh, in uh, polyamorous relationships in the past, but it just didn't work out for me. I don't know. That's just it's just not me. And for you, Jen, Jenny and Kati. Have you been monogamous the whole time? Like, was yeah. it discovering? Yeah, I also way? was polyamorous in my twenties, and like, I don't believe in love. I just like love feels good, and everybody's love, and I love everybody. Everybody. And I still love everybody, but um, yeah, no. Together, we've been monogamous, and it felt like a clear it just decision feels right. from the beginning. We it's like a non-issue. We didn't really talk about it, but it's just like what works for us. Yeah. And everybody's journey is different, but for yeah. me, my polyamory was about being young and exploring and learning and again Sagittarius moon I, <laughs> I we talked about adventure. rising in placements off 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 mic yeah, earlier right. for context. <laughs> and transformation and experience and no so I think it was more about like meeting people and meeting all of people and you know you get to a point where I'm a middle-aged person I'm 42 I I don't need to meet a bunch of people. I mean, like, I'm fine to meet you intellectually and artistically, but, like, there's... Oh, I wanted to make home. And I and got to the point... Home. I got to the point in Austin where my friend said, there are other ways to meet people, Kati. Because <laughs> I, I have but, a lot of friends. And actually, true, though, when Kathy and I started dating, we had we were both a, about a year out of other breakups. Oh, yeah. We, oh, were, yeah. we I were, were kind of in that same space of, like, having been single for a year, not thinking we're ever going to date again. Exactly. And then we fell in love with each other. Yeah, that's what happened. And what were the circumstances of, of that? Oh, no, or? you don't. Okay, I'll tell you. It was a scandalous. It was, it was, it was um, a scandal. A little bit of scandaloso because... <laughs> As Catalina would say. <laughs> Back in the day, I ran a company in Austin, Texas called Salvage Vanguard Theater, and we were having auditions, and I invited Kathy to come and audition for a couple of roles, and uh, then... I said yes. <laughs> then they were cast, yeah. and then um, over the course of our workshop rehearsal process, we started fallen in love and then she texted me on like Christmas or Thanksgiving break mm -hmm. because it was a long process of like rehearsing in the fall and then taking a break and then rehearsing and like doing the show the next year mm -hmm. so yeah dot yeah. dot dot <laughs> so yeah I was like hey <laughs> on the text hey hey on the text <laughs> and I was like could you meet me at the store to try on these shoes that would be like really great for your character and I was like oh what size God. are they and she's like they're size 5 and I'm 8 and a half. but of course I said I'll be right there <laughs> where are you the 50 things minutes. we do to get laid oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah they might fit I'll bring a bottle of wine yeah <laughs> It's about the shoes, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it did turn into one of those days of like meeting at the shoe store, then going to a bar, then going to like a party at my board member's house. Then, yeah. Dot, yeah. Dot, dot. Then dot, dot, dot. <laughs> oh. 
I love I love that, and then and I love what you said earlier, Jen, Jenny, that that Kati fe- feels like like home, and now you two literally share a home. Yes, yeah, we created a home, a family. We have lots of pets, and a twenty year old. Yeah, twenty year old daughter who lives in Austin, Texas. Yeah, she's gone, but uh, we miss yeah. her. Yeah, we zoom- we talked yesterday. And what what does what does she do? She's a visual artist. Um, she loves painting and sketching. That's really her zone uh, for her uh, survival job. She's actually a nail artist. She oh, does, yeah, really beautiful and creative uh, painting cool. on people's nails. I also met my partner doing a play. Ooh, which my play? Sp- my spouse. We did Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> it was an adaptation at Pacific Theater, and and we were not we were not dating. Or, or sorry, we were dating other. Folks at the time, and that's scandalous. Speaking of scandalous, yeah. <laughs> but nothing. Honest, honestly, honestly, nothing happened, and but there was an intense connection. Chemistry. There, there, and there really, there really was. I was, I was playing Paris, the county Paris, destined to to be with Juliet, except mm-hmm. he's un- murdered before he's able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and and Chris played a very young Friar Lawrence. Or she, she described herself as playing a young Friar Lawrence. Um, and yeah, we've been married for about five years. And very exciting um, that Chris is transitioning this year. Uh, mm-hmm. Discovery awesome. that she made during the pandemic. It's really, really a beautiful time and time of immense change in the world and in our little home it, it it's it's been it's been really wonderful and a really a really interesting offering in impermanence and and change in general you know and the way that uh, we we want to hold on to things and I think that's what scares a lot of people about gender transition a lot of cis people and even myself before I had more trans friends of like what does that mean and like ch- these kind of changes and like I thought things were one way I thought life was one way I saw, thought I saw a trajectory one way and that's what I think is so it's what I love about being a queer person is is like there are a lot of trajectories that are offered to us culturally and part of being queer and and why sometimes why I'm getting closer to the idea that maybe being queer actually is a choice and not and not um, something that we're just born with, which was kind of the values that were placed on us uh, like a little while ago. But it is a choice because we get to choose to say no to what's being offered, you know. And I and I love the connections you were making before, Kati, about that of like, there's so much more. Like there's, there's a lot more than just what we've been told this whole time. Yeah, but like there, it's like, uh, quote Jenny, uh, multitude or a tapestry of identity like there's so many ways a human can be why just be have a binary why i don't know i that's all i have to say (laughs) i think people are it is fear i think that people want to whittle the world down to what feels manageable to them and I think that there is something to be said, and, and it to me resonates with something Jackson said earlier and with what you just said, Scott, because it's very Buddhist in its nature, but that we accept impermanence and there is freedom in that, not fear in that. Mm-hmm. And that also there is freedom in accepting pain and pleasure all wrapped in one. But I, this piece, Desperately Seeking Comfortable Shoes, have been diving specifically into uh, queer Vikings because I am... Um, predominantly Norwegian um, in my makeup and the Viking narrative has been taken over by uh, white cis straight men. We imagine horns, we imagine brutality, we imagine these sorts of ways of being. And I sort of had these contemplations about like, well, where do I come from? Like, is this choice or is this nature? And I'm, I'm like many queer people in my generation, I'm the first out person on either side of my family. So I really did feel very alone. Like, who did I come from? And it was liberating to look into this history and find these queer trans people existing throughout time and space. And uh, just a couple like tidbits that I love, there's this old Viking saying that basically translates, it says, everyone gets arger as he gets older, and arger is a word that means gay. Mm. 
And it's just this idea of like, you can choose whatever family you want after you're done breeding. Because you know, Viking times, it was still heathen. But they were like, after you're done making babies for the population, go mate with whoever you want. Like seriously, women with women, men with men, we don't care. And, and even in their brutality, it was like, men were still very sexual and women were sexual with each other in their magic making. And um, queer men were the keepers of magic with women. And uh, if you were a man who did magic, that, that was just sort of like, no, like, okay. And Odin was bi and Loki was bi. And so all of this culture that has been taken by the patriarchy, it's like, no, excuse me. <laughs> That's actually not the real truth. And, and, Christianity, and again, I am a survivor of the evangelical church, but Christianity changed a lot of the ideas around queer sexuality in Norway and with the Vikings, where there was an acceptance when the church came in, no. It became burn them at the stake. It became hang them. And so for centuries, people have been hiding. But what I've loved also in my research is finding these stories of people who persist. People who, like, there is a couple that I've discovered named Anne and Jen, and Jen is a man's name actually in Norway, but they were two AFAB humans. Um, but Jen was living as a man and Anne was living as a woman who were married in 1700s. You know, and that's actually just one of many stories I've found of these queer trans uh just yeah tapestry of identities and if we go back into any corner of our cultures uh we will find these beautiful queer magical bodies that have just been silenced so long for so long we grow more arger arger yeah we arger. grow arger arger we grow more arger with every year and as we get older i love that and I certainly feel like I get more arger as, as I get older, and no. I, I say that with enthusiasm and with with with, all, with with so much interest in your project. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, and I won't talk much longer. I'm sorry, I'm talking too much. But there's something biologically true about that as well, because as as someone who's 42, I'm stepping into a space of menopause, and that means more testosterone is being made in my body. I am literally becoming more masculine as I age. With men, as when you hit that same spot that would be considered menopause, but there's not a word for it because science, Western culture, blah. But men hit it too, where you suddenly start to get more estrogen. So we actually, our bodies become more unisex as we age. Like literally, that's what happens. And so partly it's just that these Norwegian Vikings were actually kind of seeing it. And like, hey, and also what feels good just feels good. Okay, one last really funny, it's also in my play, but I there was the very first case against gay sex that was taken to the Supreme Court in Norway was uh, against uh, two women, a woman and her two lady maids. And it was in 1848, uh, I believe, or 1884. I might be mixing the last numbers. I think it was 1848. Um, but the judge decided they were originally charged with sodomy and the um, uh, fine was meant to be, the punishment was meant to be being burned at the stake. But the judge said, no, 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 we are not going to burn these women at the stake. Because if we burned all of the women at the stake who practiced these pleasurable frictions, every woman would have been burned. <laughs> and I am not kidding. That was friction. the court. Uh, that's what the judge said in his pleasurable verdict. Friction. Yes. Pleasurable frictions. And all the women were doing it, so like, let's calm down. Basically is what he said. And and I also just sort of love that. Oh, my God. <laughs> Pleasurable frictions. In a world that is quickly becoming frictionless with e-commerce and the emphasis on frictionless existence, mm. to hear, hear pleasurable friction is such a pleasurable thing to hear. That's so, it is that's the name, so, little... name of our new band. It's interesting, the kind of contours and the, and the, and the changes that can happen. And sometimes it feels like the changes can happen quickly. And sometimes biological and sometimes cultural. I I, I feel like actually it's all up for grabs. Yeah. Like it's it's all up for grabs for for all of us always. Yeah. And that's the yes. that's the cool thing that is available to all people, not just queer people, but all people. Yeah, that's awesome. Jackson, mm. when we were off off mic, uh, you were telling me about a workshop that you did on Vancouver Island um, in terms oh. of a mindfulness and a meditation workshop and. Because that's so central to your work and I think to who you are, I, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about it. Uh, sure. Well, it's a little I, bit of a hard pivot. But. <laughs> yeah, that's totally fine. It, I, uh, uh, well, I don't work for the school or anything, and I was just a participant, but the school is called the, the Body Electric School. 
and uh, it was founded in the 80s by Joseph Kramer, and uh, it's now kind of got an international presence. Yeah, what what did you do? I, I mean, I know mindfulness and meditation is a big part, big part of your work. Was it focusing on that? Was it, what was the approach? Mm, yeah, well, um, as, as uh, Jenny has spoken to being an evangel- evangelical survivor, I think, like, just to give some context, I think my queerness was the gateway to like dismantling all the systems that I had grown up with and like understanding, understanding why the Bible was why it was and, and uh, then coming to become more authentic with myself. Um, and uh, and it's, after I left that, you know, I, I started kind of thinking about like my own ancestral beliefs, and um, and that includes like Taoism, Confucianism, and Buddhism, things that like my parents and and whose their parents had practiced for generations, but never directly taught, and it was just kind of more ways of being, um, and so. I went on, like, that was part of my decolonizing journey, like, away from kind of the mainstream Christian paradigm to understanding how my own um, ancestral beliefs and, and the, the culture in which I was raised uh, can influence me and kind of what, 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 uh, what connects with me still to this day. And so in October, I did a Vipassana retreat which was like a 10-day silent meditation course out in Merritt um, where you didn't speak or look or touch anybody for 10 days and um, and we practiced meditation for 10 hours a day uh, simple vegetarian meals and it was really hard but I also I think found um, a lot of the Buddhist teachings really resonant like uh, stuff that I had um understood as a child like for for example like a, a, a huge tenant was uh, a desire not to disturb others um and and my parents were always really careful about not disturbing other people and i kind of rebelled against that until now now i understand the foundational kind of beliefs about that and the reasons behind it so that that then um led me to I mean, there's there's a huge backstory behind this, but I've been really interested in movement, meditation, massage for a while and have facilitated some workshops in that realm. But this was like an extension of that uh, on Vancouver Island, the Body Electric, where um, I was with an all-gendered group and um, there were two facilitators in their 70s who'd been doing this work for decades and had guided people um you know through kind of this intersection between their spiritual and sexual selves um and yeah it was it was just like i think because little jackson had grown up with so much fear and shame um i uh i invited you know, I brought a little picture of him to, um, yeah, like framed uh, in my suitcase and like put it on the altar and and just kind of invited him to um, like see the community, see that it was all going to be, that, that things are going to turn out okay. Um, and and I think, yeah, that, that was like the work of just letting go of those rigid beliefs as we were talking about before around this is the only way that there is to it you are deeply alone because you're different um but instead there's there's a huge community where you can love lots of different people and that touch is okay that consent is part of language um that sex doesn't have to be you know climax or genital oriented like there's 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 such a variety of um expressions and um and yeah the world is is vast so so that was yeah it was it was beautiful i received like an eight person massage at one point like it was bliss (laughs) it was like yeah life-changing and heart-opening um 
and now I feel like I'm doing a testimonial for the school, but they are, <laughs> it is really, really their, beautiful. Their e-transfer to you is on the way. <laughs> <laughs> Sponsor Jackson, I shouldn't say. Well, like how beautifully queer and radical that that's part of your decolonization practice, you know, breaking down those old paradigms of thought and, mm-hmm. and encouraging a, a really erotic freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, not and not necessarily erotic as in sexual, but a sense of being life connected force. to to the life force and to eros yeah. and and that that's really wonderful. Yeah, like eros, as you probably alluded to, you know, is Greek for for life force, right? Where as today we often think that it's connected to sexuality, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, all up for grabs. Katya, uh, we when we were on break, I heard you self describe as a troublemaker. <gasps> What? Okay. I, I, want, I like yeah, to. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, um, let's see. When I was young, I was pretty much told to, you know, in, in Puerto Rico, there's a saying that children talk when chickens poop or when chickens pee, which is never. Children talk when chickens pee. Los niños hablan cuando la gallina mea, which means like when chickens pee, which, which they never do. So don't we don't want to hear you just be um, over there. And then I was taught also that, you know, being gay was wrong and having dark skin was wrong. So all these things were putting me further in the corner. And I was just like, no, I'm not. That is not OK. I don't agree. I'm I'm just not going to agree with you, society. I respectfully disagree. I, yeah, respectfully <laughs> disagree. I'm going to go find a place where I feel safe because I I think you guys are wrong about this and uh and I found that being a troublemaker was making room for the next generation of people like me so I felt like I was you know I've been described as brave you know I was like the one that wasn't scared to say hey that's wrong hey I I respectfully disagree so I just I I feel comfortable in that in that space, and I'm gonna keep doing it for me and for the for me, of course, because I want to be a beautiful flower. And you, <laughs> and you, and you are a beautiful you flower. You are a beautiful oh, flower. Sorry. You are. But um, yeah, and uh, you just find what nourishes you. But I also found that. You know, there are kids coming up that need need me to make some noise, need me to take up space, need me to be a troublemaker and disrupt the system that we have in place that I didn't choose. And it's just been put upon us. And a lot of people are very afraid because we are taught fear. Religion teaches us fear to keep us in line. And I'm just like... Religion was a part of your upbringing? Oh, well. very much so. You know, I were, my family's Catholic, but then I they put us kids in a Mennonite school. So I was taught by Mennonites, which are like pretty hardcore <laughs> about their religion. You know, so um, everything about me was not, was not okay. And I'm just like... Well, this guy, Jesus, I think he sounds like a pretty ethical guy, and I don't think he would agree with you. So I was just, maybe I had too many questions. I was too, like, this just sounds wrong. Is anybody with me? Like, that was me as a child. So, so yeah, I'm a troublemaker, and uh, I surround myself with people that like to change the world wanted, and the only way to change the world is by dis, dis, disruption, dis, um, you know, destruction creates, you know, and these systems that we have uh, in place, uh, they're not okay. They're hurting people, actively hurting people to this day. You know, we feel like we're in a really progressive city here in Vancouver, but there are children in Canada and the United States and Latin America that can't come out that are that would get beat that would get killed 
for the things that some of us take for granted. So I will be the troublemaker. Plus, you know, it's fun. <laughs> I'm a triple Capricorn. And that's the shame that I bear. What is love? <laughs> I love a lot Baby, of Capricorns. Okay, don't a lot of there are. Me. I know there seem to be a lot. No a, a lot of Capricorn playwrights too, and actually. Yeah, yeah, I have a good friend in Texas who's a Capricorn playwright that I made plays with back in undergrad. And my sister is a Capricorn, and she's a visual artist and meticulous. That's what I'll say about you, Cappies. The oh, lead yeah. singer for the band The Tuna Helpers is a Capricorn, and she is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and she's a wild artist. She's a wild artist. I love, I love, I love hearing about my the wild Capricorns because oh, we're so I've known. Never met we're anyone we're like so that. known to be um, not wild, and, Ooh, <laughs> and to really? be. I, I think that's the stereotype. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, to be quite like buttoned up and obsessed with money and power and material. Oh well, yeah, that's know. that. Uh, I mean, it's all true. They, they have a little bit of that, but they're also wild. <laughs> there's, there's definitely, there's definitely a wild side. I remember telling a, good, a, a friend who's very into astrology. I was like, I'm a triple Capricorn. She's like, I bet you have some air in your Venus. And I was like, Okay, Kate. <laughs> and then I looked it up, and sure enough, I have an Aquarius Venus. Oh, and, so uh, that's making you artsy. And and Venus is a, a Venus. Your Venus is apparently how you express love and affection, and like how you get crushes, and kind of like that's your that's your vibe. So interesting. Well, you know, yeah. I don't know my other thingies, signs, airs, and moons because my father can't remember at what time I was born. <laughs> because he was drinking. <laughs> and in Puerto Rico in the 70s, I was born in the 70s, uh, you uh, uh, s uh, register the child. Like, I was registered like a month after I was born, you know? So, he, right. yeah, so there's no sign of w at what time I was born. I've but made some guesses, though, and I did do a reading, and I, I think it's a Virgo Sun, Gemini Moon, Virgo Rising. But that's guesstimation. It's a guess, but if you know anything about those signs, don't you see that a little bit? I, I can definitely see some Virgo and, and some Gemini energy in you, for sure. I like the Virgo because I, I like cleaning. Mm. Gemini's get a bad rap, but they, they're wonderful. They're they actually about a decimation mm -hmm. of information. It's about giving and receiving information. And that's where I also see that in, in you. Gemini? Mm -hmm. Gemini. Jackson, did you just say Gemini saved your life? Yeah, a Gemini definitely saved my life. Oh, my, my goodness. Can, yeah. can you tell us about it? <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was young and isolated in Georgia, and there was a Gemini that uh, I don't want to go into the deep, deep details, but um, she basically saw me at a bus stop uh, and she came up to me and she's like, hey, are you OK? And I'm like, not not really. And she's like, can I buy you a coffee? And so she had only known her kind of peripherally and I was going through a really hard time. And so she came and she brought me to this uh, cafe and I kind of unloaded everything on her and she heard me. She really heard me. And she brought me home and she had a cat and she had like soft sunlight drifting onto a couch and she let me stay with her and she bought me Magnum ice cream bars. And, um, and then we worked together to, to, to find justice. And, uh, and then I visited her. So the documentary that I made about Paul Wong uh, won an award in Berlin. And when I was in Berlin, she had relocated to Berlin. And so I got a chance to have a meal with her there. And she literally saved my life. So I have a huge soft spot for Geminis. They're erudite and kind. And I don't know why and they get fun. a bad rap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they are fun. Yeah. 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 The story is because my mother's birthday... It's the day before mine. My mom always told me she, I held in tight and wanted to come out on my own day because I always wanted to be independent. Uh, I was different. So I have so I was born at the beginning of the morning. Right. So she was in uh, labor on the 26th of August. And then I came out on the 27th. But then I asked my dad and he was like, 
Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I love you though a lot. I love you a lot. <laughs> Very happy you're here. <laughs> they were Jack, different times. They, they, they were different times. <laughs> Jack said you 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 mentioned your the film you did about Paul Wong. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that. The artist Paul Wong, the Vancouver-based artist Paul Wong. You you did a short documentary uh, film on it on him. Yeah, the legendary multimedia artist Paul Wong. Speaking yeah. of troublemakers. <laughs> yeah, speaking of troublemakers, I met him through a program called Troublemakers, um, a, a collaboration between Real Youth, Love Intersections, and Out on Screen, or the Vancouver Crew Film Festival. And uh, they were pairing, it was like a creative matchmaking program where they paired emerging filmmakers with established queer artists, or queer emerging filmmakers with established queer artists who had left a wake of trouble um, in their past uh, of, of decades of, of work and experience. And by a huge stroke of luck, I was paired with the indomitable Paul Wong, who grabbed my hand uh, upon meeting me and was like, let's go get cigarettes. And we just left the program for like <laughs> 20 minutes and bought cigarettes. And and then he invited me to his studio and he was so generous and, and shared his experience. And um, yeah, I, I was just luckier to, to follow him around with a camera and a microphone catching all the gems that he was dropping over the course of a weekend, two half days. And then, um, you know, I sat in the editing room and, and compiled this piece. And um, and it's, yeah, it's done well. It's it's had a bit of a festival circuit run this year, you know, been to L.A. and London, Nebraska Prairie Film Festival even. Um, and, uh, and it won an award, the second place Silver Clip Award at Berlin, um, at the Rec Film Festival in Berlin, uh, which was really beautiful. Yeah. Congratulations, Thank Jackson. Thank you. Yeah, and so and so now I, um, you know, Paul Wong has r remained uh, sort of a mentor of mine, and he's remained a friend. Um, sometimes when, yeah, I've invited him over for hot pot, and we've had some phone conversations when I've been struggling with some media industry things, and um, and Real Youth has invited me to be on their facilitation team, and so this year I got to do a virtual version of Troublemakers where we had more queer youth um, interviewing queer elders about their lives and creating films about them all virtually. And it was, yeah, just a really magnificent and, uh, and rewarding experience. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Does documentary filmmaking hold, uh, is that something you'd like to pursue more? Uh, I think so. I I like asking questions, and I think um, I'm pretty good at making people feel comfortable. Um, I think I've taken a break from film after an industry experience that was a little uh, that was challenging, and I'm more devoted to writing. I uh, recently got into the writer's studio at SFU, and will be mentored by Leanne Dunick and. I'm quite excited for that year-long cohort program. Yay! Mm -hmm. Finger snap. Finger awesome. snap. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so who knows what what will be next? Um, but I'm yeah, I'm I'm taking a break from from film for for now. Mm -hmm. And for Katy and Jenny, in terms of what what's next, I know another iteration of Catalina lies ahead. And tell and and for you, Jenny, the the show you're working on, desperately seeking comfortable shoes. What else comes next in in creatively and in life? We... Not that not that we know what comes next <laughs> in life, but <laughs> well, what's, what's next let me tell you. I will be sad some days, and other days I will be happy. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> a good start. We have a third project that we have been receiving a little bit of development um, support for called Always Boy, um, which is a piece that will exist as a live play, an Instagram experience, and a YouTube narrative. So we're sort of like building that piece by piece we've been working on the live script um most intensely throughout the fall um as members of the workshop theaters fall intensive in new york city and um so that's that's the only one well and then we have a, a ton of other just little projects that we talk about and come up and spitball but 
And are Catalina still is going to be part of the Outsider Fest in Austin, Texas, uh, in 2022, the film version. And then uh, I'm not sure if I can say information about the live Catalina show yet because we haven't, you know, uh, but there's very much excitement going on. And it will happen. Summer 2022. In the summer of 2022 that's in Vancouver. In Vancouver. That's, so yes. that's that's pretty soon. So, so there yeah. may possibly strong chance of Very a live. Very strong possible maybe chance. In the summer <laughs> of 22. So watch the space. Yes. Watch the space. Yeah. Save the date. <laughs> Save, yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all of the summer. I'll save the whole summer. June. I'll say late June. Yeah. Late June. Oh, yeah. Gemini season. Gemini's. Hey, I'm going to do well then. It's going to be great. Oh, well, it's been such a pleasure talking to each of the three of you. And so Jenny and Kati, where can the folks find you? We have a lovely website. Uh, Check out jkjklol.org for some good times. jkjklol.org. Because we are very serious about what we do. We're really serious. <laughs> you are, you are foremost so serious. serious people. <laughs> JK, JK. I love that. And Jackson, where, where can people find you? Yeah. Where, can, where can cute cuties slide in your oh, DMs? Oh, yeah. yeah. Ex- expressly. slide into my DMs expressly. Um, Son of Jackie is my handle, S-O-N-O-F-J-A-C-K-Y. So that's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, all of the things. And then my, my email, or not my email, my website is sonofjackie.wordpress.com. So you can find me there. Lovely. And I can attest all of these artists are very much worth keeping on your radar. It's been such a pleasure to talk to all of you. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Scott. Such a From the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening to this episode of Really Queer Voices. If you enjoyed, please stay in touch with me on Instagram at ButtonScott or on Twitter at ScottyGButton. This podcast has been co-curated by Faye Nass, Artistic Director of the Frank Theatre, with assistance from Joanna Garfinkel. Sound design and co-production by Michelle Cutler, Really Queer Voices is made possible with the support of Canada Council for the Arts. Wherever you're listening from, I urge you to follow the work of Vancouver-based 2S LGBTQ plus focused theatre companies, the Frank Theatre and ZZ Theatre, as well as the drag collective, The Darlings. If you're in a position to do so, please consider supporting or amplifying the work of urban Native youth, in particular their Two-Spirit Collective, an organization doing tremendous work in Vancouver's downtown east side with Indigenous Two-Spirit youth. I also encourage you to go out and see, hear, support, be challenged by, and laugh with queer art. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I'm sorry. We've got Michelle on sound. She's yeah. pressing buttons for us. And what buttons they are. <laughs> Thank you for being here.